As was mentioned already at the outset of our service during those time of announcements, we are indeed thankful for the opportunity that's been given to each of us this evening to assemble together to offer unto God that which He so richly and marvelously deserves, namely our worship, and how grand it is an opportunity in which we can come to the grand finale of the Bible. Our youngsters continue their study in the book of Revelation as they prepare for the Bible Bowl, and certainly we are excited to encourage them in that way and to set before them an example also of studiousness with respect to that book. It is in light of that, I'd remind each of us that there are puzzles available, so if you perhaps did not get to pick up one this morning, feel free to help yourself to them. Even if you'd perhaps like a second copy, if there's some still available, please feel free to take them. That most recent puzzle has to do with the second chapter of the Revelation, which this evening we in fact will come to during the time of our study as well. The study of Revelation has certainly been a continuing study of an interesting matter. And last week as we began that study, we did notice some marvelous features of the opening chapter, reminding us of the greatness of the one whose revelation it is, and of namely of that one who directed his messages, not only to those of the seven churches, but certainly by inspiration can be so valuable and so profitable to us as well. As Jesus was himself was described in that chapter, so many features help remind us that he has all the necessary information and in fact all the things that can help us live in a way that's pleasing before God and thus able on that great and final day to stand in a pleasing way before him. As we open the second chapter this evening, we come directly to the individual letters to those seven churches and we shall basically consider them in order as we look at them in just a moment. As we do that, though, I thought it perhaps entirely right to take note of some general things that are directed to all of them, at least in terms of structure. It is with that in mind that we come to note these interesting features, that is to say, some commonalities that seem to exist between all of the letters. And as we look at all of these, they should be tremendous reminders about what the Lord knows about us as well. As we study all of these over the next couple of weeks, might we ask, what would He say to the Pippin Church? If He addressed a particular short letter to you and me, to the entire church at Pippin, how would it read? Would it be similar to any one of these seven? We certainly would hope it would not be like at least some of them. However, there are others we might not be at all ashamed if the Master were to send us a letter like perhaps one of them in particular. As we look at it, note these generalities with me. All of the structures seem to be rather similar in that there's an opening introduction or at least a brief salutation, if you please, in which the Lord identifies Himself in some way that would be particularly meaningful to that particular congregation. In fact, you'll note that that's followed by, in most instances, some commendation. He did make mention, when possible at least, of some things that were good about them. You'll notice I did put, though, that Laodicea, nothing good was said about them. And that, of course, speaks volumes in and of itself. Beyond that, we come to the reproofs. The Lord told it as it was. He didn't fail to rebuke them when necessary. He didn't fail to bring to their attention that which was a shortcoming and a sinfulness on their part. And so it was that when reproof was necessary, He certainly directed it in their way. And that reminds us even today, doesn't it? 
how vitally important it is to be always of a tender and reflective disposition so that when there are mistakes and when there are failures in us, that we'll be quickly able to use the Word of God as the proper mirror and to never look past it or pretend that, in fact, we do not have such. You'll notice that both Philadelphia and Smyrna, no direct reproofs given to either one. Interesting to notice that of that thought, then these two, not to say that all the circumstances were rosy, but it does seem that that alone speaks a bit of great and interest in respect to them. We also notice all of them, we find an exhortation. Something that they needed to either continue to maintain or perhaps to change, but in some ways an exhortation provided to that particular church. And then we notice finally, all of them end with a promise of reward. That if you do this, or if you follow this course of action, if you remain faithful, then this is a particular reward, a blessing, if you please. It shall come your way. And in fact, again, in general concourse, we understand how meaningful that can be even to us by way of promise today. In looking at all of those things, what else is common among them? The speaker is common. It is the master who, as he identifies himself to each one of them, they certainly knew who it was speaking. It wasn't just some arbitrary person. It wasn't some individual. It was, in fact, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as that was delivered to each one of them again, the speaker, he identifies himself in those passages that I have pointed out to you in every instance. That's one of the first things to make clear to each one of them. Beyond the commonality of the speaker, we notice the final thing there at the bottom, which I've written in the following way. Two points that I put in quotation marks. To every one of the seven churches, the Lord said, I know thy works. He wasn't operating on the basis of hearsay. He wasn't operating on the basis of supposition. He knew full well the character of not only what they then were, but what they once had been. We always, of course, are in need of remembering, isn't it, that we stand before the eyes of one who knows our present just as well as he knows our past. We cannot fool him, hide things from him, conceal ourselves from him. He knows our works. In regard to Randy Bybee, he knows everything about me. And so it is the same with you. What we claim or what we truly are, He knows it. If we are hypocritical, He knows that as well. If we are in fact less than what we proclaim by way of preaching to others, He understands it fully and He also knows it well. Just as surely as He told every one of them, I know thy works, He knows the works of your life and mine as well. And that must have been a tremendous and penetrating truth to all seven of those churches, maybe particularly to Laodicea, who seems to have felt that they did not need him, and yet he said, you do need me because I know your works. But that isn't all. There's another matter common to every one of them. It is the very last statement. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Isn't it amazing that to every one of them, any person that hath an ear, any individual that has even a minor disposition of appreciation should listen with great intensity and listen with marvelous and powerful truth to that which is revealed. Those things are common to every one of the letters. It is, though, perhaps time to start looking to Ephesus 
and cast the spotlight upon that particular letter first. We will take them in order and we won't complete all seven of them this evening. But with regard to Ephesus, what did the Lord say to them aside from these common things we've studied already? It was to Ephesus in the first seven verses of chapter 2 that we notice very carefully the Lord making statements like this. Let's read, in fact, some of those matters as we begin in verse number 1. Unto the angel of the church at Ephesus, write, These things saith he, which holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now we notice those lampstands in the midst of which the Savior Himself walked. There is the opening benediction to that letter, the salutation, if you will. And we notice Jesus identified Himself in a way to them that would be particularly meaningful. Perhaps for the following reason. Ephesus was a major city in the Roman Empire. By the time we arrive at the first century, the city of Ephesus was in fact a central city for many things. And hence it had a reputation and those who dwelled there no doubt felt great things about their city because of this. It was in fact a central banking hub in the Roman Empire. And for that reason commerce found a rather centralized station and location. Much trade in fact to the other regions of Asia Minor passed through the city of Ephesus. But as if that wasn't enough, even the government, the Roman government centered in Rome, in fact had selected Ephesus to be a central city in many regards in terms of housing those matters that would have related to Rome itself. As you think about some of those matters, I have in fact written one more thing that may come to our mind as we recollect the book of Acts. On the missionary journeys, we do remember that when Paul came to the city of Ephesus in the 19th chapter of Acts, as it's recorded, we remember so mightily that there was an uproar in that city, and the city was known for a very particular kind of religion, the worship and adoration of the goddess Diana. In fact, Ephesus was the central place where that worship took place. People from all over would make their journey to Ephesus, to in fact take note of the temple of Diana that was located there and participate in the various worship of her that took place in the city of Ephesus. When Paul came to that place, we may remember that he wasn't treated very well because he taught against Diana as we would expect him to have done. He with no shame at all taught and preached and when some of those learned of what he was speaking, they recognized that their money-making business in terms of making shrines to Diana was suddenly to be of no value if this doctrine that Paul taught was to become favored and accepted. We will remember that as the scenes proceeded, there was a great uproar in that city. But it does remind us that Ephesus was the center of the worship of the goddess Diana. Somewhat later, there was an imperial temple located here for the worship of the Caesar. That is to say, emperor worship was a rather vitally done thing at somewhat later time in this same city of Ephesus. As we noted, Jesus was the author, the writer of the message, and He identified Himself as the one holding the seven stars and walking in the midst of those golden candlesticks, those golden lampstands. That immediately would have been meaningful to them because 
Jesus was not only aware of their works, but He was the one walking in the midst of all of them, critically aware of the kind of things they faced and critically aware of what their needs were. It is immediately following that in verse 2, He said, I know thy works. As we've noted earlier, exceedingly aware of all that they were and had been, He says, and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. The Lord thus commended them here, did He not? He was aware that they, in fact, were not able to bear those that were evil. And He goes on to say, Thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not. They had found them to be false. We would certainly make commendation of Ephesus for that. They didn't just accept what someone had said, but they tried them in light of the truth that had been revealed to them. And as such, they determined them by examination and comparison to the truth to be false. As verse number 3 opens, And hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Perhaps in light of the book of Ephesus, or the book of Ephesians, the time had come that difficulties and other matters could have overwhelmed them, but yet the Lord said they had not fainted. However, in light of all of that, things were not perfect. In fact, verse number 4 reads as follows, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Though these other commendations had been stated, and the Lord introduced this particular letter in a way to remind them of those matters which were positive, He also brought to their attention, and did so with directness, the shortcoming of the fact they had left their first love. You'll notice that as they had left that first love, Sometimes this is referred to as the loveless church, meaning that what they once had had in terms of that attitude and disposition of love, they no longer had. They had left their first love. The lesson that seems would be so pertinent for you and me today, among many that might be mentioned, would be this one. How vital and how important it is for brotherly love to exist among those that are members of the body of Christ. If we are to be as God would have us be here, or if any congregation is to be such, there must be a prevalent feeling and strong note on the theme of brotherly love. Just a few passages that direct us toward that end perhaps would be these, and might we begin in the 13th chapter of the Gospel according to John. From the same pen of the one who wrote the Revelation, on that occasion he wrote from the words of the Savior, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. That was to be a hallmark of all of those that would follow the Master. It was to be a key centralizing and signature note that they would love one another. We notice two chapters later in John fifteen twelve that on that occasion the Lord said that they were to love one another as I have loved you. And oh, what magnitude of love the Savior had for them and for us as well. Later we read in 2 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, Of the Christian graces, the latter two were these. They were to add with diligence, brotherly love, and also charity. Peter quickly notes that those who do those things would thus be those who would ultimately have that entrance into the everlasting kingdom of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They would not be barren, but yet would bear great fruit to the cause of Christ. And so today, this means, this mode, this reality 
of brotherly love is still a vital matter. Same author, 2 John, verses 5 and 6 tell us that this is not a new commandment, as John wrote, but rather one you've had from the beginning, that you love one another. The church in Ephesus, it seems, had lost that. Though once the fire of love burned so brightly in them, and though once the character of brotherly love perhaps was a pervading truth, the embers had waned away into just coals that were no longer bright. They had now etched and ebbed their way to be non-existent. The life in terms of love had gone out of them. Why had that happened? Had their fervor been lost? Had their earnestness and their love for the cross, had, waned, had it waned? Had their appreciation for what the Lord had done for them, had it slipped from their mind? Jesus doesn't explain all the reasons why He just says, you've left your first love. He does quickly notice in the next verse, to remember. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. There was a time when in fact their love burned so brightly. He said, remember those days and those times. And furthermore, repent and do the first works. That was a key element to the church in Ephesus, wasn't it? They needed to repent. So too, even today, if we find that love has drained from us and we've allowed it gradually to ebb from our thinking and mind, we too are thus in need of repentance and to return to those first works of fireful works for the cause of the Master. We notice as verse 5 closes, he says, Else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove the lampstand out of his place, except thou repent. We note the ultimatum of repentance. There was no way around it. The candlestick, the lampstand was to be removed unless they repented. Verse 6 has another commendation. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We shall encounter these again. But we note them here that this was a group that taught that which was untrue, that which was false. This particular false doctrine was in fact hated also by the Ephesians, and that was a great thing. May we at Pippin be noted by the Lord for hating that doctrine that's false, for standing against it and never compromising with it. Ephesus was commended for that. And verse 7 closes it, that he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches, and to him that overcometh. There's our key word of the book. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. That's, of course, that which all of us desire as well. That paradise of God that we shall see described so often in chapters 21 and 22, we notice here a foretaste is described that we shall be able, those who overcome that is, to eat, you see, of that manna that is to be found in that place, that tree of life, I should say, on that occasion. And with that, the message to this church closes and brings us to the next one. A somewhat briefer letter, but this one, of course, is the one to Smyrna. Now, this maybe would be a good time to look at a brief map. Here is a picture, and inasmuch as we've just noted the church in Ephesus, I would ask you to notice, I hope that the actual cities are large enough. This only has on it the cities and the districts in which they're found. But you'll notice Ephesus is the bottommost one that is to be found at your left. 
You'll notice on that occasion, it was, of course, very much on the coast or very near to it. And that helps us understand Paul's occurrence and his discussion of them in Acts chapters 19 and 20. As you notice, somewhat to the north of it, you see the city of Smyrna. A bit to the north and somewhat to the west. As we look at Smyrna, here's a map that places that in a somewhat larger context. Not only the Mediterranean Sea, but also the entire region of what is modern-day Turkey. All seven of these churches in Asia were positioned in what you and I would say would basically be southwestern Turkey. With that noted, you'll notice that Rome now is far off the screen to the left. And as we study it, one by one, we'll make our way from Ephesus to Smyrna and then a bit more northward when we come to Pergamos in just a little bit later this evening. First of all, that church at Smyrna. We notice at beginning in verse number 8, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write. So we immediately note the address to the church in Smyrna. And aside from those common features we had indicated previously, we notice it says, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. The Lord identified Himself here a bit differently than He did, of course, to Ephesus. Here it was the feature and means of the first and the last, the one that was dead and is alive. As we think about where that may lead us, here are some brief thoughts about Smyrna that may help put that introduction into context. Smyrna was also a very important seacoast town in the ancient Roman Empire in this district of Asia Minor. You can notice it's roughly 35 miles north and a bit west of Ephesus. And furthermore, it was known as a rather beautiful city, known for its attractiveness and known for, in fact, a rather large amount of tourism in the ancient era. It was also a place where an imperial site of emperor worship took place. As the Roman emperors allowed these statues of themselves to be built for, in fact, the worship of the emperor. As Jesus identified Himself, might we take note of this? This was a church to be greatly persecuted in the days to come. In fact, sometimes that's a good way of remembering it. It was the persecuted church. Not to say the others were not, but the Lord particularly emphasizes the persecution that they were to face and admonishes them to be faithful. But note this. The Lord's introduction, doesn't it shed light upon that? They were to be persecuted shortly and very greatly for His cause, and yet Jesus said, I was the one that was dead, but I'm alive again. That would bring to their mind the reality of the persecution that He faced, the reality of the fact that He was put to death for the cause of truth. And if He had endured with faithfulness that matter of persecution, ought not they in encouragement do the same? Ought not they understand that since He overcame on their behalf, that they should overcome for His behalf. All the salutations you see were directly asserted in a way that was particularly valuable and particularly meaningful for the church under discussion. Let's note the commendation of them in verse number 9. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. The Lord knew again, knew very well the works in which they had engaged. He also knew the tribulation that they had faced, the problems, the distresses, the discouragements, and He also knew the poverty. 
it would seem that this church, you see, was not known for its wealthy status. Though this place was known as a beautiful one, perhaps those particularly that made up the church there were not known for their wealth. One can still be faithful, though, without being wealthy. He did say in parenthesis, but thou art rich. Those four little words have so much meaning. Though in terms of monetary status they were not known to be rich, yet the Lord said, you are rich. That was a tremendous blessing on their behalf, wasn't it? Today, how many churches around this world, though they may be small and though they may meet in a place that may not be that appealing and that attractive, yet because of their faithfulness, they truly are spiritually rich. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, we read about that slogan concerning the Master. Speaking of Jesus, He left the greatness of heaven in all of its riches and became poor for your sakes that ye through his poverty might be made rich. And today you and I may be penniless paupers, but yet if we're faithful to the Lord, if we're true to His way, we truly are rich in the eyes of heaven. That helps us appreciate what comes next. For in verse number 9 it says, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. The Lord knew very well the status of some who made claims that notice were blasphemous. That is a reviling and railing manner of accusation and speech in which some claim to be Jews, but they weren't. In fact, the Lord said they are the synagogue of Satan. It was the devil behind that work. It was Satan behind that work. And today, may we never forget that when there are those who make claims against the truth, it is the devil at work behind them, encouraging and supporting that which is uttered. It is verse 10 that we appreciate that maybe is the most memorable concerning the church in Smyrna. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life." You see, there was a particularly difficult and oppressive persecution shortly to come their way. And notice it was the devil behind it. The devil will cast some of you into prison. May we notice Roman soldiers or others may have been the actual ones locking the jail cell, but it was the devil that was at work. And today, anywhere in any place where the church meets its opposition, where there's false doctrine that reigns supreme, it is the devil who is at work. And it is the devil who is the one engaging in that set of activities. Isn't it amazing? He said, you will be tried. The hatefulness that the world has for the church is something that's truly unforgettable, isn't it? John 15, 19, 2 Timothy 3, 12, 1 John 3, 13. A host of passages in addition might be noted reminding us that you and I live in a world opposed to the truth of God. It's described in Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10 in language that reads as follows. Language that reminds us that we war against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of high places. May we never think that we're just battling some trivial enemy who is easy to overcome. He truly is mighty. He walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, the language of 1 Peter 5, 8. It is in light of that the Lord said, Be thou faithful unto death. 
Times were going to get hard. Times were going to be difficult for Smyrna, but they were to be faithful. What may things be like here at Pippin 50 years from now, 100 years from now? I feel sure that even if the world shall stand in the United States as well, many of us won't be here 100 years from now. But what about your grandchildren and mine? Your great-grandchildren and mine? Will there be a faithful congregation here? One who has withstood the difficulties that may come upon this land by then? One that will be able to withstand in faithfulness the character of what it will take to overcome and arrive at heaven? It is a sobering thought, isn't it? Smyrna was told... For ten days, a figurative way, lasting not extremely long, but nonetheless extremely difficult and fierce. Doesn't that highlight for us the need to be thou faithful unto death, no matter what? The letter closes in verse number 11. He that overcometh shall not be hurt to the second death. There's that key word again, overcometh. Here the promise to them, you won't be hurt of the second death if you overcome. We shall describe at great length the second death when we see it more fully described in Revelation 20. But for now, may we take note that has to do with eternity. Avoiding the second death is entrance into heaven. Experiencing the second death is entrance into hell. Thus, here he says to those that overcome, even if it takes your death, however, you will not be subjected to the second death. That's our slogan today still, isn't it? Be thou faithful. And if you overcome, you can come over and live with me in heaven. And with that, the letter to the church in Smyrna closes. What a lovely but yet powerful and brief letter. Many lessons from it challenge us as well today. It is true that following that we arrive in verse number 12 at the letter to Pergamos. And with that letter, we come, of course, to some more notes. The church at Smyrgamos... Pergamos, verses 12 through 17 of Revelation 2. It says, And to the church in Pergamos, write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Whereas the introduction to the previous two had listed Jesus in a completely different way. To Ephesus, he was the one holding the seven stars and the one that walked in the midst of the, of the golden lampstands. To the church at Smyrna, we remember in verses 7 and 8, he was the one that was dead but alive again. But now, to the church at Pergamos, we notice the one that has the sharp sword with two edges. What might that mean? What might be the full appreciation that was so valuable to the church in Pergamos? We'll return to that in just a moment. Verse number 13, I know thy works. And where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is... And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication." So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Sword of my mouth, there it appears again. It's as if that's a set of bookends to the letter to Pergamos. The sword of my mouth. 
We do remember from Ephesians six seventeen that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And it was the Lord who, by way of proclamation and declaration, declared that which this church in Pergamos needed. And it, isn't, and it is a sharp, two-edged sword, isn't it? Hebrews 4.12 puts it in words like this, The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Maybe another feature would be useful as we consider the status of Pergamos. You'll notice just very briefly, it was somewhat further inland than either Smyrna or Ephesus, roughly 50 miles north of Smyrna. It had one of the most notable libraries of the ancient world, especially in the Roman Empire. There was a healing complex. In other words, this place of Pergamos was known for the capability as individuals came to be healed there. In other words, those of the medical field often congregated to Pergamos for the character of the livelihood available to them. Just like the other two, it was known for its imperial worship. The worship of the Caesars and the worship of the Roman emperors, this was also a place for which that not only took place, but was also known. Jesus commended them in verse number 13. Initially, for a degree associated with their steadfastness, despite the fact that Satan's seat was here, Again, that text reads, Thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. In other words, there were some there who truly had held tightly to the truth of God's doctrine. They hadn't denied the name of the Master, despite the fact Satan's seat was here. It seems the persecution in light of the working of Satan was particularly acute and particularly oppressive. And yet there still were those who held fast the name of the truth and the name of the Christ. Certainly that's commendable. And again, Jesus made mention of such. And He made mention of a particular person, Antipas, who was a faithful martyr. That perhaps brings to our mind a thought of a person like Stephen, who also in Acts 7 and 8 was one so often mentioned as a faithful martyr. Here, Antipas, it is described as my faithful martyr. He was personally known by Jesus. He said, my. What about you and me? Would he list you or me as a faithful servant, my faithful servant? May we never lose sight of the personal nature of what a relationship we should be able to have with the Christ. Understanding, just as Romans 8 describes it, he, in fact, our elder brother, and one whom we can look forward to erring from God with on that great and final day. But, verse number 14, I have a few things against you, Pergamos. After commending them, and after noting in a good way that for which they should be complimented, he made note of the fact that there thou hast them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. The doctrine of Balaam... And here's one of those Old Testament references we mentioned last Sunday night. Again, by count, some rank it as high as 500 Old Testament references and illusions in the Revelation. And here's one of them. We remember Balaam from the book of Numbers, specifically chapters 22 and 23 and 24. Balaam was that gentleman who Balak had requested to come and curse the children of Israel because he was greatly afraid of them. 
for what they could do to him as the leader of his kingdom. We now notice here that Pergamos, thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. In particular order, specific fact is mentioned, sacrifice unto idols and the committing of fornication. That takes us to no doubt what took place in part in that idolatrous pagan worship that was so rampant at Pergamos that it had begun to make inroads in other places, even into the church. And there were those that tolerated it, perhaps even encouraged and approved it. John says, you have there them that hold this doctrine. That word hold reminds us of their support of it. They were not opposed to it. Rather, in their way of doing things, they actually were supporters of it. Jesus said, I have that against you. And isn't it amazing? This matter of committing fornication and this sacrifice unto idols is something that will reappear in other of the seven letters that we shall discuss in due course. I would ask you to notice, what were they to do? Verse number 15 and 16 reminds us the need for repentance. That's always what's needed with error, isn't it? One more thing. Thou hast there also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We notice that also earlier mentioned, wasn't it, with respect to that church at Ephesus. This Nicolaitan doctrine, the New Testament says us enough to give us an idea of what it involved. It certainly was great falsehood, for the Lord hated it. And in fact, we remember even the Ephesians were complimented because they hated it. But here in Pergamos, it says they tolerated it. They, In fact, they held it. At the end, we notice... Jesus again says, I hate it. Oh, what doctrine this was. It corrupted the truth of the New Testament gospel. It perverted it. It turned it in a way that it was no longer the pristine, pure thing that Christ revealed it to be. This Nicolaitan doctrine was in fact a compromise on the part of that church in Pergamos. For that reason, as I think Jeff pointed out earlier, this sometimes is known as the compromising church. As you give thought to all of that, repent, verse 16, is the order of the day. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And we know who would win that battle. With the Lord fighting with the sword of His mouth, the greatness, the inescapable force of the truth, we understand that all will crumble beneath that at the appropriate time. And here to this church in Pergamos, He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. And one more time, to him that overcometh, verse 17, I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. The manna, another reference to the Old Testament, wherein the God blessed the children of Israel with that six days a week, as we've studied in the book of Exodus. And here... It was promised that they would have that white stone with a name written on it and able to eat of the hidden manna, the manna that God has available for those who can withstand and overcome. And with that, the curtain closes on the letter to the church in Pergamos. In every instance, the lessons, you and I can at least take parts from it and be encouraged by it and use it to assist ourselves in the walk of faithfulness. This church in Pergamos, this church in Ephesus, this church also in Smyrna brings us 
in the following way to this. A conclusion note or a summary to some extent in a brief way of these seven churches. Tonight we've only looked at three of them. First, there was Ephesus, the loveless church. They were told to repent and do the first works again, to return to that state of livelihood and love, that church in Smyrna. They, of course, were described very differently, shortly to undergo heavy persecution. They were told to be faithful until death, and a crown of life would be theirs. And then there was that church in Pergamos. Guilty not only of tolerating that doctrine of Balaam or similar to it, but also that of the Nicolaitans. They'd compromised on the truth, and that's never acceptable to God. They were told, of course, also to repent. Tonight, the question comes before each of us. Would Pippin be like Ephesus? Would it be like Smyrna? Would it be cataloged with Pergamos? We certainly can hope not Pergamos or not like Ephesus. It may be that difficulties as it comes, it certainly will always demand our faithfulness. Are you faithful tonight? Does God, in fact, know you personally as one striving to maintain a faithful relationship with Him? If you've never begun that walk with Him, you cannot say yes to that question. You've never, in fact, had your sins washed away. You need to, in fact, take care of that matter tonight as you believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His great name as the Son of God and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you would do that, you'd be ushered, of course, into the church by Him, Acts 2.47. But if you have done that but have not been faithful, you need that particular message that was directed to Smyrna. Be faithful unto death. You need to come back to your first love. If you need to do that tonight by way of public prayer and confession, we'd be honored to assist you. We would only ask you to let us know in the way we could do that while together we stand and while we sing.